Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and today's case is actually going out by request, which I am super excited about. More than anything, I want to deliver the stories that you guys are interested in hearing and the stories that need to be heard. If you didn't know, I actually have a case request form on my website at crimopediapod.ca. If you scroll down near the bottom of the homepage, it's right there. Also, if you're ever interested in learning more about any of the cases that I cover on the pod, all of my sources are also available on the website. If you click on the episodes tab, each episode listed there is actually a clickable link where you'll find more links to the many sources that I pull information from for these episodes. I hope you guys take advantage of that because there are times where I can only scratch what seems like the surface of some of these cases because they come with countless rabbit holes and theories, and so please do check that out. Also, don't forget to follow me on Instagram if you haven't already. I'm pretty active there at Pod. So if you shoot me a DM, I'll do my best to answer and you can also find the most up-to-date information on the cases I'm covering there as well. Okay, with that all out of the way, I think it's a good time for us to jump right in. On February 7th of 1957, Sherry Rasmussen was born to Nels and Loretta Rasmussen in California, United States. I'm covering a lot of Californian cases lately. I promise you I will pick something new next time, but I could not get this case out of my head when it was introduced to me. Sherry was known to be incredibly bright and ambitious. She actually attended the Loma Linda University, which is a healthcare-based Christian university in California, where she started her freshman year at only 16 years old. By her 20s, Sherry was already the director of nursing at the Glendale Adventist Medical Center, where Sherry was set to completely revolutionize nursing practice at her work. She regularly delivered motivational speeches to her colleagues, as well as practiced critical care nursing while sitting as the operating director. Aside from being ambitious, successful, and overall an incredible person to be around, Sherry was also stunning. She had short, 80s-styled blonde hair with a bright smile that was held together by perfect apple-like cheekbones. It's not that hard. If you look at pictures of Sherry, which a few are available on my Instagram page at Pod, why when she met the man who would soon become her husband, John Rutten, that he was smitten with her instantly. They met at a party and clicked right away. Despite Sherry actually being two years older than John, she just radiated light and John, like many others, found her energy to be magnetic. John actually went to UCLA for his undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering, where long before he met Sherry, he maintained a casual relationship with another student named Stephanie Lazarus, who is a political science major. John and Stephanie were both avid athletes and got along quite well, but according to John, their relationship was nothing more than casual hookups and fooling around. They slept together often, but ended up splitting up when John took a new job with a hard drive manufacturer and Stephanie applied to the police academy where she would shortly become a uniformed officer with the Los Angeles Police Department. 
This is fairly common, I think, being in university myself. I certainly have a fair share of friends who engage in casual relationships and are enjoying their youth, and to John Rudin, that is exactly what he was doing. However, at one point, it became apparent that Stephanie Lazarus thought their relationship to be much more than the necking and fooling around that he made it out to be. This became more obvious than ever when, for John's 25th birthday party, Stephanie threw him a surprise party, completely unaware that he had developed a serious relationship with Sherry Rasmussen, let alone the fact that he proposed to her in May of 1985 and had all but forgotten about Stephanie. Stephanie was reportedly pretty upset and embarrassed about this, and understandably so, but the thing about Stephanie Lazarus is that she had a hard time taking no for an answer. There was clearly a huge gap in how John and Stephanie felt about each other in college and a large gap in their communication because Stephanie was just learning for the first time about his new serious monogamous relationship with Sherry Rasmussen that she had no idea about. In her eyes, their relationship had only ended a few years ago and she was looking to reconnect. I can only imagine myself being in her position and how awkward that whole thing must have been. And especially for Sherry too, she's engaged to this man she had met a few years ago and now his ex-girlfriend is throwing him a surprise party? Yeah, there's definitely going to be a conversation when we get home. <laughs> Stephanie Lazarus took it upon herself to go visit John at his condo in the neighborhood of Van Nuys, Los Angeles for mm, closure in the summer of 1985 after this whole incident had taken place. It was clear that Stephanie was feeling abandoned by John after taking their relationship much more seriously than he was, and in fact, she even wrote a letter to his mom in August of that year outlining her distress over the situation. In her own journal, Stephanie even wrote about feeling so depressed that she was unable to work, which was very unlike her because she was up and coming in her work as a police officer. Stephanie even told her roommate at the time, Michael Hargreaves, that she was still in love with John. And from my research, it didn't really seem like love is something that John and Stephanie had ever discussed. Whatever feelings Stephanie held on to for John were completely unrequited. But the day she visited John, Sherry was not present at the condo and him and Stephanie actually ended up having sex together, unbeknownst to Sherry, which I personally believe only affirmed Stephanie's idea that her relationship with John was much more meaningful than he considered it to be. But in John's mind, this didn't change anything for him. He was still pursuing a serious relationship with a woman he was in love with and would soon be married to. Unfortunately for John and Sherry, this incident, however, would mark the beginning of a chain of events that occurred over the next 20 years and would completely shock the world as it unfolded. As I briefly described Sherry Rasmussen before, she was known to be incredibly smart and witty and not naive in the slightest. She knew something was up with Stephanie Lazarus and her now husband, who she did end up marrying later in November of 1985. 
Now, I'm not sure if at this time Sherry Rasmussen thought John was cheating on her or had cheated on her with Stephanie, even though that's what he did, but she definitely knew something was up because Stephanie had began making a habit out of stopping by the Rooten condo beginning in the summer of 1985 and asking for favors while either dressed in skin-tight workout clothes or armed in her police uniform. And this made Sherry very uncomfortable. Like, why is your ex-girlfriend coming to our house dressed in skin-tight gym attire or strapped up with her gun asking you to do things for her once a week? Sherry knew something was going on, for sure. Stephanie would come over and ask John for help waxing her skis, and Sherry found it odd, but she didn't necessarily intervene that much until Stephanie would leave. And I think this is because Sherry was trying to give John the benefit of the doubt. Sure, she was not happy about these impromptu visits and did confront John about it, but she had faith in her husband. And John would affirm her and assure her that there was nothing going on between him and Stephanie. When Sherry asked if their relationship was truly over, John said, yeah, it's just an old friend helping out an old friend, I promise. Sherry did ask John to stop having her over, and the two of them did bicker about it to a certain extent, but like I mentioned, Sherry was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, and John really was in love with her, despite what had happened in the summer of that year. And so the two of them just continued living their lives as if Stephanie wasn't really a big issue. And this was true, Stephanie wasn't a big issue. That was until the situation quickly turned hostile when Stephanie Lazarus showed up to Sherry's work office at the Glendale Adventist Medical Center and confirmed all of Sherry's fears. During this visit, Stephanie had told Sherry that she'd slept with her husband and apparently even threatened Sherry with the classic, if I can't have him, nobody else can. This was terrifying to Sherry, and she did bring it up to John and even her parents. Because now Stephanie Lazarus wasn't just a recurring annoyance, but now she was getting confrontational. And in Sherry's mind, this girl had hardly even dated her husband. They were just casual hookups in college. Why is she acting like this? But Sherry and John Rutten persevered through it, and like I mentioned briefly already, did end up getting married in November of 85 and were living together at that condo in Van Nuys, Los Angeles, just trying to live their lives. They both had good jobs and were hardworking young individuals who were trying to cultivate a life together. I mean, truly, they were in the launching phase of their life. However, only a few months later, on February 24th of 1986, Sherry decided she was going to call in sick to work that day. She was supposed to give a motivational speech, but that was an aspect of her leadership position that she didn't particularly enjoy or feel was very effective, and so she decided to take a self-care day instead, using a minor back injury as her excuse for the day not to turn up for her job. Which, by the way, I have to commend Sherry for. Even, like, calling into work when you're actually sick is one of those things that feels illegal but isn't. But despite Sherry wanting to take a day for herself, John still had to go to work, and so that's exactly what he did when he left the house around 7.20 a.m. that day. Around 9.45 that morning, a neighbor actually noticed that the Rutens garage door to their condo was wide open, but the brand new BMW that John had actually gifted Sherry as an engagement gift was gone. 
This was a bit odd, but not particularly unusual. Sometimes people forget to turn the stove off after cooking, forget to recap the toothpaste after brushing their teeth. Maybe sometimes they forget to close the garage door after leaving. But only 15 minutes later, at 10 a.m., John Rutten made the first of several phone calls home to his wife Sherry Rasmussen that went unanswered. When John returned home that evening shortly before 6 p.m., their garage door was still wide open and there was broken glass on the ground, and he too remarked at how the BMW was gone. He found it odd that since Sherry had called in sick that day, that she would leave without letting him know. When John got inside, he noted that the home phone's answering machine had not been activated, despite both him and Sherry knowing to do so before either of them left the house. It was just an agreement that they had together to make sure that the voice answering machine was turned on if no one was going to be home. If Sherry left, why would she not activate the answering machine? that answer would come quicker than anticipated because within seconds of looking around, John was able to see exactly where Sherry ended up, on their living room floor, laying face up dead, having been shot three times in the chest. In front of the fireplace, Sherry was found deceased wearing her bathrobe with a camisole top and underwear, clearly not anticipating the fate that met her at all. John called 911 instantly, and when police arrived, they immediately made note of the signs of a struggle that took place in the condo. There was a porcelain vase shattered that had been apparently broken over Sherry's head with accompanying blood spatter and a toppled credenza unit with the contents of one of the drawers dumped all over the floor. As well, there was a bloody handprint next to the burglar alarm panic button that was preceded by a trail down their two-story condo stairs from the second floor down to the first floor and then down into the hallway where the alarm was located. It was pretty obvious that whatever happened, Sherry was within a fraction of an inch from being able to call for help. It became apparent to investigators that Sherry was riddled with defensive wounds on her hands and arms that accompanied the three gunshot wounds to her chest made by 38 caliber bullets, but most interestingly, on Sherry's left arm was a bite mark that was bruised around the edges, which indicated to police that whoever did this to Sherry was exceptionally pissed at her. The forensic team swabbed a bunch of the blood spatter that was left all over the house, and criminalist Lloyd Mahaney swabbed the bite mark for DNA and logged it into evidence. Despite the messy and gruesome nature of the crime scene and the fact that Sherry's death looked incredibly personal, the police began initially working the case as a botched robbery. On first glance of the scene as a whole, it appeared that Sherry, given her attire, was not expecting company, but somebody had broken into her home by picking the lock on the front door and had begun collecting electronic equipment to steal. After Sherry walked in on the intruder or intruders and foiled their robbery plan, she was brutally murdered and the intruder or intruders hopped in her brand new BMW and used it as a getaway, but left all of the electronics that they were stockpiling and Sherry's jewelry behind. It turned out that the only things actually stolen from the home of Sherry and John Rutten was the BMW, Sherry's purse, and their marriage license. 
Thankfully, the police were able to locate the BMW abandoned in Sherry's purse about a week later, but no word on the marriage license. Since Sherry had presumed to be home alone all day, police began trying to construct a timeline almost right away, which they were able to do quite efficiently because of how that morning happened to play out for Sherry and John. After piecing together when John left for work, when the neighbor spotted the garage door open, and when the phone calls home began coming in unanswered, police were able to get some additional information from a cleaning lady who was working in another condo unit nearby and heard what she believed to be a domestic dispute around 12.30 but didn't call 911 because she thought it was just two people having an argument and certainly did not hear any gunshots. However, the reason she didn't hear any gunshots may be in part because near Sherry's body was found a balled up quilted blanket that had apparently been used to muffle the sound of the shots that killed her. As well, it happened to be that there was actually another home invasion robbery that had occurred only a few blocks from Sherry and John's condo, approximately two months after Sherry's murder, in which two male suspects were at large and were thought to have been in possession of a 38 caliber weapon, which is the same type of gun thought to have murdered Sherry. The timeline and circumstances of that case made it so that these two robbery suspects did become the prime focus of the investigation into Sherry Rasmussen's murder and were described in an article by the LA Times as two Latino men between 5'4 and 5'6 and again were in possession of a 38 caliber weapon. But something about this robbery theory didn't sit well with Nels and Loretta Rasmussen who were Sherry's parents and they were the first to inform lead detective Mayer of the suspicious behavior that one Stephanie Lazarus, a fellow officer in the LAPD, was exhibiting towards Sherry before her murder. Straight away, the Rasmussens had their eye on Stephanie Lazarus. This seemed way too personal to be the byproduct of a home invasion gone wrong. With the amount of damage done to the home and the damage done to Sherry's body and the bite mark and the fact that the robbers didn't actually take anything from their house except for the BMW, it didn't fit all into place for the Rasmussens like it apparently was for the detectives. Detective Mayer's partner, Steve Hooks, did find the bite mark on Sherry's arm to be particularly unusual, considering bites that occur during violent struggles are much more often inflicted by women. However, once the detectives began working the botched robbery theory, and robbery crimes are statistically more often committed by men, and once the detectives decided to zoom in on those two male suspects from the other home invasion, that theory proved to be much more palatable than anything Nels and Loretta were saying about Stephanie. Lazarus. As a result, the detectives hardly made a note of Stephanie Lazarus's odd behavior and never did follow up about it either, and the bite mark went unchecked, logged into evidence, and for all intents and purposes was forgotten about. I should mention that when Detective Mayer began working through potential suspects at first, he was quickly able to rule out John Rutten, which is commonplace for the spouse of any murder victim to be one of the first, if not the first, person investigated in the case. But John was so distraught over the entire ordeal that he soon after the murder quit his job at the hard drive manufacturing company and moved away from Los Angeles entirely. And unfortunately, despite the overwhelmingly gruesome crime scene and the detectives having their eyes on suspects, Sherry's case effectively went cold. 
Nels and Loretta Rasmussen said that detectives sadly were largely unhelpful when they would try to call and get updates about their daughter's case. Not to mention, I'm sure they felt pretty dismissed and disheartened when the detectives didn't take their claims about Stephanie Lazarus too seriously. It's pretty widely known that at this time in the 80s, California police were preoccupied with masses of incoming gang violence and the crack epidemic of the 80s. Because of this, police were unable to devote a large amount of manpower to Sherry's case, or at least that's the reason some sources give for the Rasmussens being effectively stonewalled by the LAPD working Sherry's case. However, Nels Rasmussen was especially unsatisfied with that reasoning as a cop-out for no movement happening in his daughter's murder investigation, because he couldn't ignore the inkling that he had in the back of his mind that Stephanie Lazarus was somehow involved. Sherry confided in her parents about Stephanie's odd and frankly threatening behavior, and even that Sherry suspected Stephanie may have been stalking her. Which honestly doesn't seem that far out of the realm of things that Stephanie Lazarus might do, considering she showed up to Sherry Rasmussen's work and threatened her. But when Nels Rasmussen ended up writing to Chief Officer of the LAPD, Daryl Gates, in 1988 about Stephanie again, he received no reply. And when he wrote to the original Van Nuys detectives, he was told that he was, quote, watching too much television, implying that their investigation and inductive reasoning abilities were much more sophisticated somehow than what Nels was proposing. But he was just not convinced that the police had the right idea. His daughter, Sherry Rasmussen, was six feet tall and overall in excellent condition. She was very healthy and very fit. There was no way in his mind that Sherry could have fallen victim to a botched robbery. It would have taken a real fight for anyone to subdue her, and in Nels's mind, whoever did this had it out for Sherry personally, and would have not gone to all of this trouble to kill her if it wasn't their intended mission. Nels recalled that at one point during the initial investigation, Detective Mayer had actually told him that the whole ordeal was suspected to have lasted at least an hour and a half based on the timeline they created from the evidence and eyewitness accounts. And so to Nels, it seemed like that was a lot longer than any burglar is going to stick around, especially after they've been busted by the homeowner. And at the end of the day, Nels Rasmussen couldn't ignore the close-range gunshot wounds to his daughter's chest that felt very personal and intentional. In the early 90s, Detective Mayer ended up retiring from the LAPD and Sherry's case file was handed over to a new detective, who effectively goes unnamed in most sources, and likely for good reason, so I'm gonna keep it that way also. When the Rasmussens went back to Los Angeles to meet with this new detective, he said that Mayer's old notes on the case didn't give him any new information that could potentially move things along. He said there was no new suspects and the likelihood of new leads turning up was quite poor. Nels at this time mentioned in an article that he read about new DNA technology and had even offered the detective to pay for the testing of forensic evidence in a private lab out of his own pocket. I was a little unclear on whether Nels Rasmussen's offer meant testing the DNA collected from the bite mark on Sherry's left arm, or if it was meant to test the blood evidence found all over their home. 
but either way, it I guess it doesn't actually matter because Nels Rasmussen was turned down. The detective was dismissive and advised the Rasmussens to move on with their lives. That conversation was effectively the end of the Rasmussen's relationship with the LAPD, but the beginning of a series of events that would prove to be exceptionally more suspicious than at least I think anybody on the outside really anticipated. In the meantime, Stephanie Lazarus had been moving up the ranks of the LAPD and eventually would even move on to start her own private investigations firm called Unique Investigations. In 1987, she would earn a gold medal at the World Police and Fire Games in San Diego, and a few years later, in 1993, she would make detective and eventually become an instructor at the police academy in 1996. John Rutten himself eventually remarried and seemed to heed the caution given to the parents of Sherry Rasmussen and was trying to move on with his life. Things stayed stagnant like this in the case for some time, and in the eyes of the public, Sherry was all but forgotten about and the police were exhausting their resources elsewhere. However, at the end of the 90s when DNA testing was up and coming, the LAPD formed a new unit comprised of detectives looking into the forensic evidence collected from the various departments' cold case files to determine whether or not any of them had any potential for being solved through new DNA testing technologies. According to the LAPD, among the files likely to be solved at that time was Sherry Rasmussen's, but it would be another few years before Jennifer Francis, a new analyst for the LAPD crime lab, was able to examine the physical evidence in the case. In 2004, Francis was unable to find any matches in the combined DNA index system, known as CODIS, but she was able to find that the saliva from the bite mark on Sherry's left arm did in fact come from a female and a blood sample collected contained mixed DNA from Sherry and another female, which completely undermined the original theory that detectives had that Sherry was murdered by two male home invaders. Frances remarked, however, that usually when she analyzes a forensic sample, she's also given access to the entire case file, but this time she was not. Without it, she had no other information to go on based on her findings. Not to mention, Francis described the evidence envelope containing the sample from the bite mark as pretty beaten up, and it took almost a week for the coroner's office to find it after she had summoned it. Upon discovering that the biter was a female, Jennifer Francis asked to look into the case file a little bit more, and came across a report of a quote, third-party female who was allegedly harassing Sherry Rasmussen at work before her death. When Francis decided to ask her detective supervisor who this third-party female was, he responded, Oh, you mean the LAPD detective? He further elaborated that the woman in question was the former girlfriend of Sherry's husband, John Rutten, but that this woman, quote, wasn't a part of this, and the department had already concluded that Sherry's death was the result of a botched robbery. Like Nels and Loretta Rasmussen, Jennifer Francis was dismissed, and no other detectives would listen to either of them in regards to the suspicions they had about this third-party female, unbeknownst to Jennifer Francis exactly how suspicious this third-party female's behavior really was. But Francis had an icky feeling about the whole situation. 
The fact that the evidence envelope was all beaten up the way it was was really weird. And the fact that it took the coroner's office a week to get it to her when she summoned it was also pretty weird. The way her detective supervisor responded to her when she asked about the third-party female was also pretty weird. And I don't think Jennifer Francis knew this at the time, but the fact that the Rasmussens were also dismissed in the same way that she was when they brought up their suspicions about Stephanie Lazarus was like, red flag, super weird. Unfortunately, the people in power at that time, and by in power, I mean the detectives on the case, they were not willing to move forward with any other investigations other than the one that they had set their sights on, which was the botched robbery. Somehow, despite the forensic evidence pointing in the exact opposite direction, the LAPD was so convinced that the botched robbery angle was so viable, much more viable than anything Nels and Loretta Rasmussen or Jennifer Francis had to say about Stephanie Lazarus. Because of this, the forensic evidence that Jennifer Francis found had to just get filed away into Sherry's case file and it wasn't re-examined for quite some time. That doesn't necessarily mean that the Rasmussens or Jennifer Francis forgot about it or that they started buying into the botched robbery theory because they absolutely did not. But there was something about the nature of Stephanie Lazarus that the detectives didn't want to talk about. They didn't want to go there and they were certainly not interested in opening that particular can of worms. It's unclear what the motive was for the police to be so closed off when discussing anything to do with Stephanie Lazarus. But what we do know was that the whole thing rubbed Jennifer Francis especially and the Rasmussens the wrong way. We also know that a young woman who had just gotten married, moved in with her husband, and was looking forward to continue making waves in her career, had her life cut short by somebody who was being selfish. Unfortunately, it would be a few more years before anybody was able to dive back into Sherry's case and get some new perspective. But thankfully, that only lasted until 2009, when crime in Los Angeles had subsided enough for the police to be able to start dishing out manpower elsewhere besides the streets, and detectives Jim Nuttall and Pete Barba began re-reviewing Sherry Rasmussen's file, finding it interesting enough to be worth looking into. And thankfully they did, because it seems like these two detectives were the only ones who could see past the smoke and mirrors of the robbery theory. Due to the forensic evidence analyzed by Jennifer Francis, where she concluded the DNA to be that of a female, detectives Nuttall and Barbara trashed the burglary theory altogether and began working completely outside of the bounds that previous detectives had laid out. They remarked that the female DNA profile just jumped out of the case file pages straight at them, and they knew right then and there that it was back to square one. It was clear that the robbery theory was getting kind of tired, and that justice was long overdue in the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. Detectives Nuttall and Barba began working the case through the lens that the burglary was staged to throw off investigators. And this was realized to be an increasingly viable theory as they failed to piece components of the case together due to a lack of logical sense. 
The murder was committed in broad daylight, which is not necessarily too uncommon for home invasions because typically robbers will stake out a home and look for patterns in when people are home versus away during the week. However, Sherry and John's condo was in the middle of a gated complex, which was surrounded by other units. If the robbers wanted to target Sherry's home, they would have not only had to have been aware of their schedules, but also the schedules of all the surrounding neighbors to avoid being caught. And okay, maybe that's exactly what they did. Maybe these robbers really wanted what the Rutens had, but Sherry's jewelry box wasn't even touched and none of the electronic or stereo equipment in the home was missing either, although it was still moved around a little bit. Some of the stereo equipment that looked like it was being compiled by whoever broke into their home to take was stacked at the top of the stairs in the condo that led up to the second floor, and on top of this pile was a VCR. However, if you'll remember, blood trails in the condo suggested that the initial fight between the intruder and Sherry Rasmussen broke out on the second floor and continued down the stairs where Sherry had tried to reach the panic button on the house alarm before she was killed. If this was the case, and the intruder was trying to stack all of the electronics at the top of the stairs in order to carry them all outside, but then was spotted, then the stack of stereo equipment would have likely been knocked over and scattered during the fight, right? But when police arrived, it was still stacked at the top of the stairs. As well, on top of that stack of stereo equipment and the VCR was a thumb-sized blood stain, suggesting to Detectives Nuttall and Barba that whoever stacked these electronics did it after the fight with Sherry, which corroborated the theory that whoever killed her had staged the scene like a botched robbery. Not to mention that thumb-sized blood stain had no print which told them that whoever had done this had planned it thoroughly and consequently decided to wear gloves to prevent leaving a fingerprint. The detectives were able to compile a list of five female suspects, one of whom was Stephanie Lazarus. When they were compiling their suspect list based on the information in the case files and the fact that the killer was a female, they came across Stephanie's name being noted as the casual ex-girlfriend of John Rutten, with the initials P.O. next to her name. Detective Nuttall was shocked to learn that P.O. meant police officer, and that Stephanie Lazarus was an active, uniformed officer with the LAPD working in the Commercial Crimes Division with a specialty in art theft. But they had their doubts that Stephanie was actually the killer. Mind you, all they knew about her was her name and her relationship to John Rutten, because despite disclosure from Sherry Rasmussen's parents and even John himself, the case files never once mentioned Stephanie's harassment of Sherry or her threats towards her. Despite Nels Rasmussen making the original detective on the case, Detective Mayer, fully aware that Stephanie showed up to Sherry Rasmussen's place of work and could have potentially been stalking her, the case file hardly mentioned it other than what Jennifer Francis, that criminalist from the LAPD, was able to dig up herself when she was testing the forensic samples. But that was it, and the police department was even reluctant to hand over that small amount of information to Francis. So you can imagine why Stephanie Lazarus's name might have stuck out to Nadal and Barba, but it definitely wasn't a priority because to them, the case file said nothing about her behavior being abnormal at all other than the fact that she was the ex-girlfriend of John and that now she just so happened to be a police officer. 
And so, out of five, Stephanie Lazarus was considered the least likely to have committed the crime, and she was placed at the bottom of the list. Now, despite her being at the bottom of the list, Stephanie Lazarus was still an active police officer and technically a colleague of Detective Nuttall and Detective Barba, so they knew they had to tread lightly. The detectives made a pact comprised of two promises. One, if Stephanie wasn't the killer, and they were reckless in naming her in reports or caught talking about the case callously, that this could potentially do irreparable damage to her as an officer, and so they were going to be especially careful. Two, if she is the killer, her designation as an officer does not change a thing, and both detectives agreed that they must follow the investigation wherever it leads. With this, the detectives denoted her in all of their files anonymously as number five to protect her identity and the integrity of their work, and the investigation proceeded. Interestingly, Nadal and Barba were able to rule out the first three women on their suspect list quite easily due to a lack of a sufficient motive. It turned out Sherry didn't have a lot of problems with too many people. Suspect number four, a woman who Sherry worked with at the Glendale Adventist Medical Center, was also ruled out quite quickly after being cleared via a DNA sample that did not match the killer on file. This left only Stephanie Lazarus on their radar, and so they began looking into other aspects of her life during the mid-1980s, around the time Sherry was murdered. The detectives discovered that at this time in the Los Angeles Police Department, the preferred weapon of choice for a police officer's backup off-duty weapon was a 38. Officers in the LAPD were granted access to purchasing weapons compatible with a specific type of ammunition called Federal Plus P that matched the bullets used to kill Sherry Rasmussen. And funny enough, Stephanie actually reported this exact weapon type, her off-duty 38, missing only 13 days after the murder. The report of the gun going missing stated that the day Stephanie Lazarus went into the Santa Monica PD, she said that her vehicle was broken into and her gun was stolen along with a bag of clothes somewhere not too far from a pier off the Pacific Ocean. Nuttall and Barba figured that an officer who was going to commit a brutal murder like the one of Sherry Rasmussen would know better than to use their standard issue on duty weapon because the punishments for losing that gun are much more significant and it would have been quite obvious if Stephanie Lazarus showed up to work the next day with no gun. And speaking of work, the detectives hypothesized that if Stephanie did in fact kill Sherry Rasmussen with her off-duty 38, that she would have had to do it on a day off because the scene was so gruesome. There was absolutely no way Stephanie Lazarus could go radio silent for over an hour and a half just to commit the murder and then clean herself up without looking suspicious and coming back. And records would in fact show that Stephanie Lazarus was off work the day that Sherry died. It was becoming clear that Stephanie Lazarus was not the least likely suspect. In fact, she had very quickly become the prime suspect. And this investigation was moving significantly faster than the initial one into Sherry Rasmussen's murder which was only accelerated because the detectives had a DNA sample from the killer from that bite mark and the blood all over the crime scene. However, they knew that if they summoned a DNA sample from Stephanie the usual way with a warrant, then that could get pretty hairy within the department pretty quick. 
Instead, Nadal and Barba decided to hatch a plan to collect a voluntarily discarded DNA sample from Stephanie after tailing her on a day where she was running errands. This method would allow the detectives to further investigate Stephanie Lazarus without tipping her off, and so the detectives followed Stephanie until she threw away a cup she was drinking from and swooped it right out of the trash can once she was out of sight. LAPD criminalist Michael Mastrakovo was able to get a viable DNA sample off of this cup, and on May 19th of 2009, when they ran it against the saliva from the bite mark inflicted on Sherry Rasmussen's left arm back in 1986, it was a match. At this point, it was all hands on deck, and the case was transferred all the way up to the Robbery Homicide Division, which handled many high-profile cases, and with the aid of Detectives Nuttall and Barbara, the arrest of Stephanie Lazarus was planned meticulously. Without too much operation details, dozens of officers on June 5, 2009, were briefed on a search warrant that they would be conducting just outside of the Los Angeles Corps, but were not told much else. Unbeknownst to the officers involved, they donned on Stephanie Lazarus's home in Simi Valley, which is an area a bit northwest of LA and directly north of Malibu. At this time, detectives set up a phone call with Stephanie from the police department's former headquarters in Los Angeles, the Parker Center. This detail is especially important, and it was orchestrated by Chief William Bratton of the Robbery Homicide Unit, and his intent was for this operation to end with Stephanie Lazarus at this specific location because in order to gain access to it, Stephanie would have to surrender her weapons voluntarily, which limited the possibility of her being able to violently retaliate against the arresting officers. The phone call with Stephanie Lazarus ended with the agreement that she would come down to the Parker Center under the impression that there was a suspect in custody there waiting for her to discuss details of an art theft case that she was working on at the time. Once she arrived, she voluntarily checked in her standard issue weapon per policy and entered into the interrogation room where there was evidently no suspect waiting for her. Once inside, detectives sat her down and confessed that it was all a ruse, and that they were just trying to tie up some loose ends with the Sherry Rasmussen case from back in 1986. However, interrogating detectives Gregory Stearns and Dan Jaramillo knew that they also had to tread lightly, because Stephanie, as a police officer, was well aware of her rights in the legal system, and they did not want to make it obvious at any time that she was a suspect because she knew that she could invoke her right to legal counsel at any time, and ideally it would just be better to ease into a confession. And so, the detectives told Stephanie that the reason they lied to her and set her up at the Parker Center was because she had dated John Rutten, and they didn't want their past relationship to be the subject of office gossip. If other officers found out that the case was being reinvestigated, it may start turning the gears in the rumor mill again. Thankfully, Stephanie actually bought into this, and eventually detectives were able to talk her down a little bit and prompt her about the murder of Sherry Rasmussen, although Stephanie claimed not to remember much of the event due to the time that had passed. Mind you, at this point in 2009 during the interrogation, it had been 23 years since Sherry Rasmussen was found deceased in her home. 
The detectives took their time with Stephanie Lazarus though. They led the conversation roundabout in circles, but always ended up back talking about the murder. That was until Stephanie looked like she may become defensive or hostile. Then they would just start talking in circles again, trying to lighten up the mood and trying to appeal to her as a fellow police officer. Eventually, Stephanie Lazarus began giving up small pieces of information, which included her making visits to John Rutten at his marital condo. But walking on eggshells here in this interrogation is a massive understatement, and with only the slightest mention of DNA recovery from the crime scene in which Sherry Rasmussen was found, Stephanie became defensive, and this time she would not put her guard back down. It was then when Stephanie refused to submit any DNA evidence and walked out of the interrogation room, likely on her way to follow up with a lawyer. But what Stephanie didn't know was that the police already had her DNA on file from that discarded cup and matched it to the DNA of Sherry's killer. And with that, Stephanie Lazarus was in cuffs for the murder of Sherry Rasmussen before she could even make it anywhere near an exit. Meanwhile, during the execution of the search warrant on her home, police located Stephanie's journal, which surprisingly had entries from around the time of Sherry's murder, in which she details her undying love for John Rutten, and specifically how upset she was that he was marrying Sherry. As well, her internet history also showed that over the years, Stephanie had been periodically checking up on John Rutten, despite at this point in her life, also getting married to somebody else and even adopting a daughter with that person. It was clear to detectives that Stephanie Lazarus had a very solid motive for committing the murder of Sherry Rasmussen 23 years before her arrest. And honestly, it seemed like it was by some miracle that she was not a suspect at any period beforehand. After her arrest, the cases Stephanie was working were dropped immediately, which was truly unfortunate, but it would have been way too easy for any defense attorney to argue in court that their defendant was being investigated by a corrupt cop. As well, Stephanie was allowed to retire early from the LAPD, and I speculate that this was likely to preserve her benefits or something, but it's not like it really mattered anyway, because she was being held at the LA County Jail on $10 million bail set by Judge Robert J. Perry while she awaited trial for murder. 10 million is really largely unseen for bail, but the judge cited that his reasoning for this was that Stephanie was a flight risk, especially considering how strong the evidence against her really was. The defense tried to argue this with attorney Mark Overland trying to use the case of Robert Blake, which I actually covered in my last episode, as what should have set the precedent for bail in Stephanie's case because the cases in his eyes were similar. If you tuned into that episode, then you'll remember that the prosecution's evidence against Robert Blake was quite weak, and his bail was set at $1.5 million, which he was able to pay and he awaited trial at home. But the circumstances of this case were very different. Unlike in the case of Robert Blake, there was DNA evidence that linked Stephanie to the crime scene, along with a much stronger motive than the prosecution was able to present against Robert Blake. Stephanie's bail was set in stone, and the pretrial proceedings began underway in October of 2009. During this pretrial hearing, Mark Overland motioned to have the entire case thrown out on the basis of Stephanie not being granted due process. Obviously, the evidence against her was incredibly strong, and so the defense had to get creative, which is exactly what they did. 
Overland argued that the evidence from the initial investigation should have identified Lazarus as a suspect way back when, but the police, for some reason, failed to do so. And so the evidence against her lay degrading in an evidence locker for 23 years, making it less reliable and violating her rights to a speedy and just day in court. To back this up, he cited the truth in evidence provisions of the Californian Constitution, which supported his argument that, in fact, the seriously long time it took to bring charges against Stephanie had severely impacted the quality of the evidence and it should be considered as negligence. As well, he cited Nels Rasmussen's claims to have mentioned Stephanie's name numerous times to the initial investigators, but for some reason, they were never followed up on. Overland's attempts to get the case thrown out didn't exactly work, and so he continued to file a series of motions trying to suppress evidence, albeit as any good lawyer should do, but all in all, they were denied. Interestingly, another part of this pre-trial hearing was discussion about what's known as the general acceptance test for new forms of evidence. In 2009, DNA was not new, but the evidence in the case of Stephanie Lazarus still for some reason had to be vetted in court. In order for evidence to pass the general acceptance test, it had to meet criterion established in the precedent-setting case of Fry versus the United States in 1923. In order for scientific evidence to be admitted, the method for which the results were arrived at has to be quote generally accepted in the scientific community, which is kind of vague, and so that vagueness was addressed in another precedent-setting case in 1993. I won't go too far into it, but I personally found it interesting that the methods for analyzing the physical evidence against Stephanie Lazarus weren't widely accepted enough to bypass that sort of legal discussion in 2009. Despite Overland's countless efforts to dismantle the prosecution's case against his client, the trial proceeded and began in February of 2012, overseen by the Los Angeles Superior Court. The media painted the case and the trial as a love triangle scorned woman type of thing, and Deputy District Attorney Shannon Presby really did play off of that when she began opening statements in February of 2012 with the famous quote, a bite, a bullet, a gun barrel, and a broken heart. That's the evidence that will prove to you that defendant Stephanie Lazarus murdered Sherry Rasmussen. To seal the deal, John Rutten was summoned to the stand and made to discuss his relationships both with his late wife, Sherry Rasmussen, and with Stephanie Lazarus. John admitted to the court that he did in fact have sex with Stephanie once while engaged to Sherry. If you'll remember, it was that summer of 1985 after Stephanie had found out about Sherry and she went over to his condo for closure. But John said on the stand that it was a mistake and that he was still in love with Sherry. He further said that when he proposed to Sherry that he didn't even give Stephanie a second thought. Why would he call her and tell her? Their relationship didn't mean as much to him as it did to her, and that was evident when she found out about the engagement and confessed her love for John before sleeping together one last time. But John maintained that this encounter changed nothing for him. He was still committed to marrying Sherry, and even admitted to the court that he told her about the affair with Lazarus and that he expressed wanting nothing more in the world to stay engaged and to get married. John's testimony further elaborated on the fact that after Sherry was murdered, he was unable to spend another night in their home and left to live with his parents in San Diego. He was devastated. 
However, what was unexpected was that John also admitted to meeting up with Stephanie at least two more times after Sherry was murdered and sleeping with her. Which is so wild to me because I can only imagine how Stephanie's mind was twisting this into thinking that she was being almost rewarded with exactly the outcome that she wanted after murdering Sherry Rasmussen. Little did John know at that time though that 23 years on, she would be on trial for committing the very crime that he was seeking out love to try and heal from. Jumping ahead a little bit into the defense's cross-examination of the detectives on the case, I thought it would be important to mention that defense attorney Mark Overland spent a good time on the bite mark trying to discredit it in court. This evidence yielded DNA which was the key to proving Stephanie's guilt. Overland argued that the sample was improperly stored and the potential for Stephanie's DNA to be added after the fact was ever present. If you'll remember, Jennifer Francis, the criminalist for the LAPD who analyzed the bite mark, said that the evidence bag was in pretty rough shape. I'll talk about this a bit more later, but many people would come to speculate that there was, in fact, a conspiracy in this case, but it wasn't about framing Stephanie Lazarus. In fact, this hypothesized conspiracy was said to be working in quite the exact opposite direction. Mark Overland also brought up some of Stephanie's friends as a character witness and showed excerpts of her journal that showed her interest in men other than John Rutten around the time of the murder and years afterwards. This was trying to prove that her affection for John was not nearly enough motive to kill his wife. But for every journal entry about another man or another problem that Stephanie had, the prosecution had entries about John and Sherry. After presenting all the evidence, reconstructing the crime scene, and doing what they do in court, during closing arguments, prosecutor Paul Nunes stated that the attack on Sherry by Stephanie was like prey caught in a cage with a predator, and further reminded the jury that Stephanie willingly did not provide an alibi for the day of Sherry's murder. The defense tried to fight this in court and say that, you know, you can't use that as evidence against her when she was invoking her right to silence, which, okay, I can buy into that. But the defense also tried to chalk up the rest of the evidence to purely circumstantial fluff, as Overland called it, and he said that the DNA from the bite mark on Sherry's arm having matched Stephanie being only the result of a conspiracy against her and nothing else. At this time, the jury was told to consider first and second degree murder charges, but after less than an hour, the jury found Stephanie Lazarus, then 51 years old, guilty of first degree murder, and she would be sentenced to 27 years to life in prison. If you remember, Sherry's father, Nels Rasmussen, discussed Lazarus in interviews with the original investigating officers extensively, but none of their discussions about her were ever really noted in the case file. And so, and I guess this is my opinion, but the fact that Mark Overland tried to argue the fact that Stephanie was not granted due process because she should have been investigated when the murder happened in 1986 was really interesting to me because it's not like Sherry's family was disagreeing with that, and so why didn't it happen? It was very suspicious to all parties that despite people very close to Sherry and John pointing the finger at Stephanie Lazarus very early on in the investigation, that the only note of her made in the case file was that she was the former girlfriend of John Rutten. 
If you'll remember also, Jennifer Francis from the LAPD crime lab came quite close to connecting the DNA sample she had analyzed to Stephanie, but was told by her supervisor that we're not going there. Francis actually ended up filing a lawsuit alleging even further misconduct in this case, saying that she suffered retaliation and harassment from her superiors when she tried to dig into this case and accurately report her suspicions of Lazarus. These allegations also involve the LAPD refusing to acknowledge her findings or validate her ideas in other cases, one of which was the Hillside Strangler, who ended up being a duo that were committing serial murders in Los Angeles between October 1977 and 78. It seemed like the LAPD was trying to delegitimize Jennifer's work altogether, and it became even more suspicious when she found that semen samples from the Hillside Strangler case that she intended on analyzing had been tampered with and destroyed, but she could not find out why or how this happened. It ended up that Jennifer Francis developed sort of an awkward working relationship with the original detectives on Rasmussen's case, and it got so bad that Francis was even taken off working the case of the Grim Sleeper, who ended up being Los Angeles serial killer Lonnie David Franklin Jr. with no explanation. It couldn't be a coincidence for Francis that the detectives working the Grim Sleeper case had also played a significant role in the case of Sherry Rasmussen. Jennifer Francis ended up even being demoted to a non-analytical position after being verbally retaliated against for expressing her concerns about Sherry's case. However, unsurprisingly, the Superior Court judge, Michael Johnson, ended up ruling that there were no triable issues of fact on her claims of harassment, and in April of 2019, not that long ago, Jennifer Francis lost the suit. In 2010, Nels and Loretta Rasmussen filed a civil suit against the LAPD alleging a cover-up, which included allegations of Stephanie being able to review the case file, the LAPD being dismissive, intentional infliction of emotional distress, fraudulent concealment, and wrongful death liability, which was all substantiated by police records from 1992 that showed some detective Phil Morrill, who checked out all of the forensic evidence in the case of Sherry Rasmussen and lost it, all except for what Jennifer Francis was able to get her hands on in 2004. Unfortunately, the entire suit was dismissed because the court claimed that the Rasmussens had their time to sue come and go after they broke off contact with the LAPD back in 98. If you remember, that was the result of the new detective who took over for Detective Mayer being incredibly rude and dismissive towards the Rasmussens, and so they cut off contact. This fact, I guess, somehow made the potential for a civil suit only valid until the year 2000, with the judge citing the statute of limitations. I'm going to be honest, I'm Canadian and I don't fully understand statute of limitations, but in my opinion, and this is solely my opinion, it seems like the court just didn't want to hear it anymore out of the Rasmussens. And frankly, I think the justice system was embarrassed that one of their own was the one who committed the brutal, gruesome murder of Sherry Rasmussen. As recently as 2013, the California Supreme Court again declined to hear the case, and unfortunately, Nels Rasmussen passed away just this past year in 2020. Although he was able to see his daughter's killer face justice, he was consistently let down by a justice system, and he died without witnessing the LAPD having to answer for what he claimed to be their negligence. 
Stephanie Lazarus is still serving her sentence today and will be eligible for parole in the year 2034, although I do have my doubts that she'll get it. I think the optics would be really bad on that one. But she had effectively gotten away with murder for over two decades and had her defense attorney grasping at straws when she finally got caught. The odd behavior that Stephanie was exhibiting before Sherry's murder was indicative of somebody malicious who couldn't let go of an old flame. But were there red flags that told Sherry and John that Stephanie was an active threat? I'm not sure. What I do know is that Sherry was a bright and ambitious young woman with a passion for healthcare and was devoted to her husband. She left behind her parents who had to relearn how to live without her after Stephanie selfishly cut her life too short. And unfortunately, Sherry paid the ultimate price for Stephanie Lazarus's jealousy. Thankfully, however, justice was served and the correct killer was caught, all thanks to Jennifer Francis, Detective Nuttall, and Detective Barba. Thank you everybody for tuning into this case. I really appreciate all of the consistent support. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another one. And if you have a case suggestion, don't forget that the form is on the homepage of my website at crimopediapod.ca. For those who know about this story already, I hope I was able to do it some justice. This case is absolutely insane with many, many rabbit holes. I am guilty of falling down a couple of them. I definitely think that this case needs like a whole Netflix series or something because it is a whirlwind. It is really insane. But I think even if I was only able to scratch the surface of some of the details in this story, the message remains the same. Sherry Rasmussen had intuition. She knew that Stephanie Lazarus was being weird. And unfortunately, she paid the ultimate price for pursuing a man that she loved. I think it speaks to the importance of your gut feeling. If someone's giving you weird vibes, it's probably because they have weird intentions. If your fiance or husband or boyfriend's ex-girlfriend is showing up at your condo twice a week in workout equipment or strapped up in her police uniform and your boyfriend or husband or whoever says it's nothing, but you feel like it's something, it might be something. Listen to your gut, trust your instinct. Like I mentioned before, after the case of Jody Arias and Travis Alexander that I covered earlier on the podcast, your intuition is there to protect you. It makes it so hard in a case like this because I, I really don't know if there were any true warning signs or red flags that Stephanie Lazarus was more than just an annoyance or was more than someone who was just trying to steal Sherry's man. I don't think they really could have seen the violence coming from her. But in the same token, Sherry confided in her parents, in her friends, in John, that she was afraid of Stephanie Lazarus. And it makes me wonder if something could have been done to protect her. And I think this story speaks also to the integrity of the Los Angeles Police Department at that time. Sherry was told that everything was gonna be fine, so she dismissed her gut feeling. And then when something bad did happen, the people that were supposed to advocate for her and get the freaking case solved just simply did not want to do so until two like-minded people came together and decided that she was worth justice. And although this story is a tragic one, it is nice to know that 23 years on, she did finally get that justice. I think that's all for me, everybody. Thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll see you for the next one.